Uh, when my um, dad was about to die, uh, he was at uh, Massachusetts General Hospital. Uh, there was a decision to bring the hospice in. And um, my family had a really, uh, a really powerful experience together, uh, deciding, you know, kind of how to um, proceed to these last days of my dad's life. Uh, and there was one point where I noticed that the, the doctor, uh, the hospice doctor, um, was unusually kind of present, kind. Um, and he went around to each person just kind of checking in with how they were doing. And my sister, my older sister, just started crying. And she said, you know, I just, I just can't understand why my dad has to suffer like this. My father was really in a lot of pain, you know. And she just, just it was just that real pure-hearted, I just can't bear my dad to suffer like this. And she just was like, why? Why is this happening? And he very softly said, um, because he got born. Mm. And there's, you know, quite a wide range of people in my family of, of what they believe. You know, there's fundamentalist Christian, to Christian, to atheist, to Buddhist, you know, there's quite the range. Um, But in that moment, or, you know, series of moments, that combination of just my sister, really the anguish and the purity of the question, and then just the the truth of it, just that other, other just fact, he got born. And it was so helpful, like it really helped my family. It wasn't like a whole lot of discussion about it. It was just like, oh yeah, (laughs) you get yourself born, you have to die. You know, just the fact. Acceptance, just that pure acceptance. And then later, when I was talking to this man, the doctor, it turns out he was a, a, he's a Tibetan Buddhist. Uh, and I just felt like so much, um, just that power of presence and clarity of truth, you know, that he was able to bring to my family. It was very helpful. So we get born. And that, that, that fact that all of us got ourselves born, um, And when we come to try to understand, you know, like what is really happening, you know, in our lives, you know, how, it's like what are the nuts and bolts of how and why we suffer and what are, what are the nuts and bolts of how we understand peace or freedom? So we start to... Um, get enough days of quiet and not doing a lot of extra um, work or distractions. It's like we we renounce a lot of doing so that we have time to really pay attention much more carefully to what's happening. Uh, And it's said that we're born into these six sensitivities. 
And I think sometimes we just don't pay attention to these, you know, basics like the sensitivities or the six sense doors, doors, uh, sensitivities. And even if we had a sense of like the science of the speed of sound, if we get a sense of what we're asking when we ask people to be mindful of sound, it means that our attention, which we don't even question often, well, what is attention? You know, what is this? What is this, you know, attention itself? And then we're asking, asking to connect this attention subject the subject, the witness, you know, that somehow we have to bring together this kind of scattered random attention with the speed of sound. It has to make some connection, whether it's in the ear or in the mind or the ear or somewhere out there, but somehow we have to connect. And this is a huge accomplishment. We can't underestimate it that we can just connect. And then, I talked about it the other night, but it's that when we can connect, then we practice sustaining. Connect, sustain, connect, sustain. And we're doing this with all of the six sense doors, sensitivity. So we can just imagine how sensitive this door really is to perceive the speed of sound. And then how quiet and still we have to be to perceive what sound is, free from any past ideas or concepts, or just there's the word plain. But does that word plain really, really describe the experience of hearing the sound of the plane? There's no way. We might feel the vibration right now of the sound of the plane in our body. How does that happen? (laughs) That's how sensitive we are. So there's the ear door, the eye door. Again, you know, nobody wants to touch their eye, right? It's so sensitive. It's just, and then this light and color and just that how we perceive seeing. You know, it's like, this is, again, he got born, we got born. And then, you know, there's just this, how is seeing happening? And then the speed of light. And then how do we misperceive reality with hearing and seeing that we can understand somehow scientifically better? We understand scientifically that starlight touches our eyes here. That starlight isn't out there. It's, it touches the eyes here. That's, you know, this is the truth. And this question, are like, are we really quiet enough and still enough to grasp this? That we have this whole idea of this imaginary world of the word starlight or the word plane, but it's not the experience. Here comes another car. Yeah, and we can say, oh, I know what that is, a car. And we don't pay attention, right? Because we think we know. And just, it's, it's that quickness of the concept and living in the concept. It takes the ability to go, wait a minute, investigation. 
Investigation is an awakening factor that's so important where we, where we go, oh, wait a minute, what is my experience of it? My feeling, non-conceptual f- experience of it. And when we're listening to the sound of the car, we could have the thought come through ten times at least, that's a car. So we just notice that's thinking, and then we come back to the vibration and texture again. It's like we go back and forth. You might not think you could get fully enlightened listening to the cars go by on Pleasant Street, but you can. And then there's our body. I mean, we talk about sensitive. It's just like physical sensations are moving so quickly. You know, it's far more amazing than sound and light and color. And I'm not going to go into smell and taste that much, but really to imagine how we smell from very far away the smell of a lilac or how um, poignant and evocative a smell can be. You know, sometimes you can smell the um, tomato sauce (laughs) if you like pasta. (laughs) You know, just like if you smell it like two hours before it's served and what it brings up. You know, it might not be that for you. It might be kimchi, you know, who knows, but it's like whatever it is, it's, it's powerful, right? That, that sensitivity and the taste sensitivity. And then when it gets really, really fascinating, it's like, are we really interested in thought? Like what really, it's just the same with sound. It's like, sure, it's easy to get into a thought like, oh, it's getting humid. Um, but it's very different to really be aware of, is that the sound of your voice or somebody else's voice? Or, or is it in black and white? Or is there an image? And then how quick is it going? Well, I can say that, that that's faster. The thought, oh, it's getting humid, is faster than the speed of sound or the speed of light. So sometimes it's described, these six sensitivities and the stream of change that's happening moment by moment, it's called bombardment. You know, that's the the ancient way of describing this, that each moment of consciousness, seeing, hearing, touching, smelling, tasting, thinking, it's just going so fast. Um, Sometimes it's called oppressive, bombarding. Uh, but you get a sense of, like, you might have a very, very deep experience in meditation of feeling like that misperception of being separate is gone. Subject-object disappears. There's the absence of aversion and attachment, and you really feel that you've understood something. Sometimes, like five minutes later, we could just be struggling with doubt. In fact, that's usually what happens at some point. You know, it's just like you have this deep experience, and then, and then all of a sudden, like, you're like, you know, really just totally caught up in doubt. What is that? How quickly it can change. And it's like the little me just asserts itself. It's like the little me disappeared. We love it. 
it's like awesome, right? And it's why we come. And then all of a sudden, whew, it's just like, wow, that little me just gets so afraid of losing itself, right? It just comes back, boom. You know, and just like that's the impermanence, you know, the seeing, hearing, touching, smelling, thinking. All that happened is that one little thought came through. It's a doubting thought, and we get caught. So I'm going to explain more about that in a minute, but I just, I just, I think it's just so um, wonderful when we get a sense of, well, okay, we've been here five days, and you start getting quiet enough, still enough sometimes, to explore. And the Buddha taught that it's not only that seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, thinking, you know, this six-sense doors, I want to emphasize it. Doors mean they're open. They're not closed. Sensitive. That he also taught that each moment of consciousness, there's a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling, which is mental. So that also is happening simultaneously. So there's a sound, there's a mental, there's a pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feeling that happens and it's gone. There's a sight, there's a pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feeling tone and it's gone. Mental. It can be physical. Maybe there's a physical sensation in the thigh. It can be pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feeling, but it's, it's mental. This is part of we got born. It's a given. It's part of the package of the six sense doors and then the Vedana, the simultaneous pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feeling. This is happening with each thought. It can be pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. So if you kind of grasp why it's hard to be mindful, I just want to get it across. It's like we, we think this, you know, we, we, we are so used to thinking, okay, I'm going to study this and I'm going to get the degree, and then I don't have to do it anymore. You know, really, we just, we don't, you know, when we hear, if we're new and we hear five years, it seems too much. You know, and you hear us old folks laughing about, ha, 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 kind of macho, 30 years, you know. It's like a new person's like, what? You know, it's like, what, are you kidding me? 30 years, that's a long time. But those of us who've done it a while, you know, you just start to get a sense of like, whoa, hmm, just starting to understand it a bit. <laughs> it's a different thing. And, and I think that what's so fun is that I just did a self-retreat and it was so interesting to me. I just really understood something, you know, really got it, which was so great, was that when you're really mindful you will feel like it's the first time you've ever been mindful. It's the nature of it to feel like you've never been mindful like that before. And so you have to be really careful, because sometimes I think that's where some of the doubt comes in, because you'll feel like, you know, where have I been? What have I been doing? It's so different when we're really mindful. And we have to remember that if you're really mindful, it's timeless. There's no, it's, it doesn't depend on time. It doesn't depend on space, and it's complete. It's like it's a very full moment of being here, and it's so full uh, that we can be, we have to be careful of minimizing, 
any other times we've been paying attention or awake. It's, it's that powerful. And the other reason why it will feel like it's the first time we've really understood and been mindful is because each moment is new. And, you know, we can't say it enough. Like, this is the first time you've heard me speak. All, you know, it's just present time awareness, present time awareness. It's like, that's it. So if that's how it feels, if we get that feeling of like, wow, you know, I get this. It's more like, oh, I'm getting it for the first time. It's wonderful. It's like that's what um, beginner's mind means. When Suzuki Roshi coined that phrase, beginner's mind, it's because it's like you really begin again. And it's not like some metaphor. (laughs) You really are beginning again. It's great. It's timeless. And then if you kind of have questions about this, just kind of check out what it's like to be really caught in time. Just like there's no time. You know how you can get so stressed and how that feels just like there's no time. You have your big list for the day, you know, and you're looking at it. You're, you know, drinking the coffee in the car or like running out, you know, and it's just like the, there's just like the squeeze and that whole squeeze is because there's no time. And it usually feels like you've been there forever <laughs> in a very, really unpleasant way. Mindfulness feels the total opposite. You have all the time in the world to actually stand up. So mindfulness gives us time. The closer you are to mindfulness, you'll feel like there's no hurry. And you can get a lot more done. You know, you know the times when you're actually just doing one thing at a time. It doesn't depend on the speed. It depends upon the quality of the awareness. There's a Bob Dylan song where he said, um, there must be some kind of way out of here, said the joker to the thief. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. So what is, what is the relief? Well, believing that we can control what's happening at the six sense doors brings less and less relief. And if you look carefully, at this is what we're meant to keep understanding. When we're suffering, if you, it, when we're suffering, it's really like to really look if something's unpleasant and if we're pushing it away or withdrawing from it. It's this idea that actually we can control it. And it's that idea or the belief or the not seeing clearly is why we suffer. And it's the same with the appearance of the pleasant. Usually we're like, you know, ah, you know, it's like, ah, pleasant, right? But then there's this thing that happens that we want it to last. And it's the wanting it to last is where we suffer. Because the truth is that we can't control things that much. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And neutral's fascinating. 
neutral is actually um, so interesting because most of us tend to be intensity junkies. We rather have pain than neutral. And it's very important to investigate this. It's like, look at when there's indifference kind of settling in or boredom. It's usually because it's less intense. It's just to explore. So if we're going along, and you know, sometimes there's happiness, and sometimes there's compassion, and sometimes there's fear, and then there's think, lost in thought, and this kind of just unpleasant feeling in the body, then there's pleasant feeling in the body, then another thought, lost in thought. It's just like the idea is that we tend to not be interested in process. how life really is. And we can develop an awareness that uh, isn't disturbed by this stream of change, that's with the stream of change, isn't disturbed by it. It's connected, connected but not lost in it. There's a... um, teacher named Sri Nazargadatta Maharaj from a book, I Am That. It's a book of question and answers. And he, the most amazing Dhamma just comes out of him, the truth. It just, it just kind of flows out of him. Uh, and so at some point the, the questioner says, um, you're so like liberated, you're so awake already, what's left for you to do? And he just, you know, He says, uh, what remains for me to discover? The meaning and purpose of existence, the secret of suffering, and life's redemption from ignorance. And I particularly was intrigued this last time I read that, the life's redemption from ignorance. It's, It's an unusual languaging. But in the Buddhist um, world, ignorance means this misperception that we're separate. And so when, I, when I'm encouraging, you know, that exploring the six sense doors and really understanding when concurrence is happening, and you hear us say, check to see if your attention can be right with something as it's happening. You don't try to force it, but that just that suggestion will help us remember <laughs> that we can do it sometimes. And when the attention is concurrent, it's not separate. Subject-object disappears. It might just be for a second, but it's very powerful. And each of us tends to have a sense door that's easiest for us. So easy does not mean, you know, five hours of concurrence. When we say easy, (laughs) easy means maybe a couple seconds once in a while. Of like, oh, that you're really with that movement of the sound as it's happening or pretty close. Or right with the breath as it's moving. Uh, And the idea of this, again, when you start to understand it, is not that you wouldn't notice a lot of other things as it's happening. So when I first started really trying to be with the rising and falling movement um, of the breath at the abdomen, 
um, I remember just like a month went by of working with Sayadaw Upandita, every day going to see him. And one time he asked me, like, well, what do you notice when you're with the rising movement? And I described all the stuff, but I never described that a thought happened. You know, and he was just kind of like always like, (laughs) you know, go look, you know, roll your eyes, you know, leave the room, you know. (laughs) But I found this process of working with him very interesting because it felt like it was a process of getting more honest. And so the next morning I went in and I said, well, actually, I noticed like probably five thoughts as I was with the rising movement. And it was like, he was like, finally. You know, it's like, you know, are you kidding me? Are you, you know, just like, of course. That's more like it. And so what, what starts to change with somebody who's been trying to be at this for a while and when we're initially with it, it's like it's not only the acceptance of that, but if we get lost in the thought, that there's less, there's so much less reaction to it, that all that energy we go into reacting to the thinking, that we actually just come back. You just start, you come, you just bounce back, you bounce back, you bounce back. It's, there's less, um, all that judgment about how much you're away and how hard it is and how you're not doing good at it, it gets less. Freeze up energy. So life's redemption from ignorance, it's like when we get out of the way, the world is peaceful. <laughs> you know, when aversion and attachment are gone and ignorance is gone, that doesn't like annihilate anything. It's just that ignorance is gone. There's just um, life as it is. Process. When Upandita, Seda Upandita first came here in 84, 1984, um, he hadn't been out of Burma and he'd been a monk since he was seven years old. Um, very different culture and uh, really not exposed to Western psychology or feminism. <laughs> or IMS. <laughs> And so there were just a few of us here practicing that was really serious, really serious. Um, started with four hours of sleep, you know, that was like minimum, maximum, maximum four hours of sleep. Uh, and the course was going on, it was about two weeks into this course, and he started doing, unbeknownst to us, a very long series on doubt, like weeks. And it, you know, it was just like, and every time he'd start talking, he'd say, just because because no one is making any progress in this retreat, Sayadaw still has to talk about doubt. And we'd all be like, oh my God, you know. And it was really night after night, okay, you know, okay. And it's like, 
two weeks into the series, and he's like, Seidel still has to talk about doubt because nobody's making any progress. And, it, you know, for us, for Westerners, that just doesn't help us, right? We just, we just don't feel inspired. We've got to hear that we're, you know, doing great, and maybe we'll feel like some lessening of the self-hatred. It's just totally different psychology. Right? And so in the meantime, he's giving the series, and apparently he had met with the uh, staff, and the women on staff were all telling him that he should give a personal story during the Dharma talks. You know, because that's unheard of. You know, that's like, you don't give personal stories if you're Syed else, you know. And so, uh, you know, he walks into the talk this night, and I could tell he was very different, you know. First of all, he met with the staff who are honest, right, and tell you what you're really feeling rather than what you want to hear. That's not how it is in Asia with the Syed Al. So he looked really shaken. <laughs> but I could tell he was going to do something different. So he, you know, he started in with, you know, Sayadaw has to talk about doubt because no one's really making any progress, you know, so we're all like that. And then, <laughs> well, and then he said, Sayadaw's going to tell a personal story. <laughs> Really, we almost fainted. I mean, we were all like, wow, a personal story. Oh, my God. You know? <laughs> so he went into how like, he ordained when he was seven years old, and he was brought to the monastery by his parents. And um, he had to share a room with somebody really old. It was like 92, you know, some monk that had been a monk all his life, and he was 92. And he snored really loud. And so like this was night after night. Um, he heard the snoring, and he, it was unpleasant, and he was having aversion. And so um, he, he, it's, they talk in a certain way. They don't say, I did. It was like, and uh, Sayadaw had a moment of doubt. <laughs> he didn't say Sayadaw had a few moments of doubt. <laughs> Sayadaw had a moment of doubt, but he gave himself a good talking to, and he's never had a moment of doubt since. (laughs) And that was our personal story. (laughs) We were shell-shocked. I mean, you know, it was like, oh, my God. You know, it was like, wow, you know. Because we were down for the count anyway, you know, <laughs> one moment of doubt. Okay, you know. <laughs> but it was very interesting to me. Um, I told the story in the last retreat I taught, a three-week retreat, and there's this man I've worked with for many years, and um, there's one kind of karmic knot, obsessive thought pattern that he's had for years, years that he just got, gets caught in and he'll be out doing walking, you know, and then sit and he's churning in it and churning in it. And he actually said in an interview after I talked about it that he gave himself a good talking to <laughs> and that it worked. No, I'm not. You know, like it was so cool because he said, you know, I just decided enough already and, and just like stop. And he just went back to the movement of his legs, the bottom of his feet. And he got that he had that kind of power of his mind. So it's like I'm saying this because both are important. 
You know, it's like there's a, it's really important to be able to explore hidden objects. And so if we're having obsessive thought pattern, generally speaking, there's something underneath it. So if we're planning and planning, I call it planning number 5,222. You have to have humor about it, but when you're doing whatever, you know, plan or version number blah, 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 or wanting number 50,225, you, five days, you start getting to recognize them. Fifteen years, you really know them. And then, you know, 30 years, well, you're, it's whittling down to certain ones that just still, right, are there. And it's like that learning, just that learning that you're going through layers. And sometimes, mostly, what we will say is, before you go back to the anchor, come to your whole body and just make space for whatever is there. You don't get a shovel out and dig it out. This is not about, it's a safe process. It's safe because you're not using aversion or attachment to explore. If you're trying to get rid of something or get something, that's not exploring. Better to move away. But if you just include the whole body and just say, hmm, I mean, I know when I'm obsessively planning, it's usually fear, maybe sometimes wanting, but I don't try to dig it out. If I open up and I just check, and if it's not going, here I am, then I don't go to it, because it's not there. And this is what's important. If it's not there, it's not in the present moment. And then you don't have to be with it. So we don't have to get into this idea that we have to get rid of all the anger or all the sleepiness or all the grief. We're not trying to get rid of anything to be free. In fact, you can get a very deep enlightenment experience being with boredom. You know, it's, it, this, is, this is not about trying to get rid of anything. It's about an awareness that isn't identified it's, so if it's sleepiness, it's not my sleepiness. It's not my boredom. It's not my fear. It's fear that's afraid. It's mindfulness that's mindful. It's anger that gets angry. It's kindness that's kind. So whenever we have a sense that it's mine, that, that's what we call identification. And there's some part of us that's tight, real identification. When we're really suffering, it means that we're triggered. Triggered means we're just really think it's mine, and we really think it's permanent. Hence, so much of this Vipassana practice is if you notice the beginning of the movement of the breath, it's to see if you can notice the ending. Always that process. If you notice the beginning of a sound, see if you can notice it end. Because it's much harder to do that when you're with loneliness or fear, right? It's like to remember that you can be with the beginning of loneliness and the end, or the beginning of anger and its end, or the beginning of kindness and its end. This is what starts to cut through this idea that it's mine. If anything was mine, we could control it. If, if your thoughts were yours, you'd be doing a much better job, right, of controlling them. 
And this is, the, this is the important understanding. This is understanding. The relief in this practice comes through understanding that everything's impermanent or that it isn't ours. And a great place, you know, I, where I grew up, my dad, the only thing my dad ever talked about was the weather. I mean, that was the conversation, if there was one. You know, that was what you talked about. And in New England, you can talk about the weather a long time, you know? It's just like, it can... I remember one time I got a message during a three-month retreat to call home, and I was like, oh, no. You know, just I was so quiet. And then I thought, oh, no, you know, it's not going to be a problem. I'm going to be able to just talk about the weather. And so I just listened to my dad talk about the weather for about 15 minutes and said goodbye. It was like, you know, that's it. But the weather is interesting in that New England, it changes so much. And that's how we are. We're just these weather fronts, you know, and we think our body's separate. But pay attention to eating or breathing. We're we're, we're sharing the air, we're borrowing air, we're, bothering, we're borrowing earth element to have a body. You know, we're borrowing. It's like there's this just constant recycling. So Srina Zargadatta says, the body is made up of food and the mind is made up of thought. So the the power of the investigation and the exploration is being able to know that each moment is new, which means it's really unknown. And it's that willingness to relinquish the known that's really the most radical part of this practice. It's just that willingness to know that we can relinquish the concept and actually just be, be here And again, we have a chance again. So I really recommend when you're sitting or walking just to check out, just try, <laughs> just being, just being quiet, just seeing what happens, and knowing that whatever's happening is okay. It doesn't matter if it's boredom, it doesn't matter if it's sadness, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, deeply concentrated and quiet, it doesn't matter. What matters is that you're just ready for anything to happen. This is um, called Evening Rain by Po Chu E. He lived from 772 to 846. And it's translated by David Hinton. An early cricket sings clear, then stops. A lamp flickers out, then flares up again. Outside the window, telling me evening rains come, a clattering of banana trees. That's bare attention. It's quiet, huh? There's not a lot of, not a lot happening. <laughs> um, what I love about this practice is that the means and ends are the same. So anytime you're mindful, that's the mind of a fully enlightened being. It's not like when we say, be aware of standing, 
And that is going to be very different from when you're 92 and you're, you know, maybe you're fully enlightened. It's like the mind that's mindful is the mind of an enlightened being. And what we don't like is the pace. We want to have that now all the time. But we taste it, and it's like if you can get that it's just a matter of um, just encourage this punch in in the morning and punch out at night. Just, you know, that's all you need to do. You know, you just punch it, you know, wake up, punch in, go to bed, you know, punch out, and just like, ah, you go to bed, you did the best you could. If you're doing well, you're still here. And you're all still here. Some years ago, a couple of years ago, um, I was in Rangoon with some friends going up to Chaswa, Upper Burma, to teach at this annual retreat there in January. Uh, And we like to bring some presents for people there. Uh, And this year, I hadn't quite managed the present I had wanted for the cook. And the cook is sort of like, He really um, feels like it's his karma this lifetime to take care of Westerners. And he he does it really well, and he he means it in a very deep way. So I like, you know, not just me, but everyone who goes loves to uh, try to bring him some token of appreciation. But I got into Rangoon and really didn't have what I wanted, so... um, we thought of, we were just kind of talking at lunch, and we were at a Japanese restaurant, and we thought, well, maybe we could get him a chef's hat, you know, one of these big hats, just mm-hmm. kind of like to just have some fun with him. Um, so we asked um, in the, in the hostess, and then she went back to ask the cook, and he was Japanese. Um, and it took a long time. You know, we were waiting around and waiting around. And he came, he came out kind of like with this thing under his arm. But he came up to me and he said, oh, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, what? And he's like, I'm so sorry for everything, every day. <laughs> I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry for everything, every day. And I love that. If you're anybody that has any tendency toward guilt, <laughs> like, or, you know, self-hatred, or, you know, thinking things are your fault, it's like, it's a preemptive strike. <laughs> you know? I do it a lot now. I love it. I love it. It's like, just wake up and just say, I'm sorry for everything every day. You know, and it just covers it, you know. <laughs> it's so good. Oh, I just, really, it's like music to somebody that has a guilt thing. It's like music to your ears. And you can even do it every hour. You know, you could time, like, your computer or your bell to just, I'm sorry for everything. 
<laughs> and there's a real healthy way to approach it and an unhealthy way to approach it. Because you can see that there's a way that we can do that and just reinforce um, believing everything's our fault. And that identification. And it's like a false humility, right? And it just feels terrible. And there's a way that we can come by, like, it can be like a practice, where you come to see that it's like we're human. And we make a lot of mistakes. It's like I make tons of mistakes every day. You know, it's just like that's how it is. We're human. And we try our best to not have aversion and attachment motivating us. Because that's where, you know, it's like if aversion is in charge, (laughs) it's trouble. If attachment's in charge, it's trouble. If loving kindness is in charge, it's wonderful. If mindfulness is in charge, it's wonderful. And, and, And yet, it's like if we're not fully enlightened, we're gonna be at times like the aversion happening and we're identified with it. Uh, so that, that humility, that's that just genuine humility where we are really sorry, genuinely, for the things that we do that cause harm to ourselves and others. And that, you know, that's part of the practice. We will go through times where regret will come up, and that's, that can be very healthy. Uh, the Buddha, uh, the translations aren't great, but he described two things. It's like um, the fear of not being mindful. And the, it's like, the, it's called shame, but the shame of having not been mindful. And that's, it's, it's like they don't, they aren't supposed to be translated into this, you know, guilt and it's all my fault. It's a very different um, understanding. But you'll know it when you'll feel it. It's like you've been mindful for a while and then it disappears and you find yourself in some kind of attack of planning or, you know, aversion or attachment and it's like, oh. So this is what will start to change for us. It's like the Buddha taught that the that we develop a taste for liberation. And that it's like he said, just as the ocean is salty, it's like the, there is a, and there's a taste to that salt, there's a taste to liberation. And you start developing a taste for mindfulness. And the contrast between not being mindful and mindful, you know, becomes more and more painful. And that's good. That, that's the suffering that ends suffering, is being able to recognize, oh, aversion. And instead of thinking it's my anger or my fear or my attachment, it's like, oh, it's just attachment. And the teaching is, and this is the great joy of having a long time to explore, it's like rather than get, getting caught up in the object of the wanting, or the object of the fear, or the object of the aversion, the teaching is to pull that projection back and feel it in the mind door, or feel it in the body, or actually feel the pain of the aversive thoughts in the mind. Because, I mean, I, I just, how many times have I been establishing blame in my head, right? Uh, like, it's like aversion, you're just, just, just finding out who's right, who's right, me. <laughs> Who's wrong? You. <laughs> right? Or, or God's wrong. Or, you know, whatever it is. It's like the, the universe is designed wrong. 
however, however, we're just thinking it shouldn't be this way. Uh, so, so this the suffering that ends suffering is the ability to go, oh, aversion or dislike, and to actually feel the pain of that in the body, mind, heart, but also to explore it and to see that it's impermanent, that it's not me, that it's like a weather system, it will change. It it has nothing to do with who you are. Nothing. It doesn't refer back to anybody. It is just like a cloud passing through the sky. When I first met my great-niece, she was three, and she had moved from California to Massachusetts. Um, And I met them in a parking lot. I just remember getting in the car with her. and she's kind of very um, expressive little girl. I wouldn't call her repressed. <laughs> and so we went back uh, and to her home, and we went into the. You know, she dragged me into the living room, and she wanted me to watch uh, the, cart- the the animated cartoon Peter Pan. Uh, and she had clearly watched this a few times. Um, <laughs> And she gets bored really easily. And I, I didn't know this, but there was a particular part of this uh, movie that she wanted me to see. And I was very confused. I didn't know her. And I was just like doing what you, you know, you, you sit down and you watch it, right? But she was doing all kinds of things. And she'd come back. And then she'd like lay on the couch. And she, I'm like, oh, God, talk about, you know, uh, a short attention span. You know, we were doing so many things, and we were coloring and playing with blocks, and then we're watching this, and finally, we were getting close to what she wanted me to see. So she just got so excited. She was just like, oh. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you know, and she got pillows for each of us and blankets, and we got, we were laying down there, but she couldn't, she couldn't sit still, and she's jumping up and jumping out, and all of a sudden. Tinkerbell comes on, <laughs> and you know, and then Peter shows up, and she's just like, she's mesmerized. I mean, totally enchanted. And she turns to me, and they're just interacting. And she said, "I want that." And she said, "I want more and more and more of that." <laughs> Uncensored, right? It's like, just like, that is called wanting. (laughs) I have never seen a pure, pure example of it. And, you know, I was like, I was like, oh no, she's three years old. (laughs) What's going to happen to her? (laughs) That's wanting. And it doesn't matter if it's Peter Pan or Tinkerbell or Nibbana mm-hmm. or a chocolate or a good sitting or more kimchi. You know, I like that kimchi. Whatever it is, it's good. You know, what? just like it wasn't there yesterday. <laughs> wow, I'm still suffering. <laughs> You know, just, wow. You know, it can really (laughs) hurt when you don't get what you want. You know, and it's just like that ability to just go, oh, it's okay. 
<laughs> so the idea is that you pull back from the object. You pull back from the kimchi or the chocolate or the idea of whatever our idea of is of the unconditioned is or the good sitting, right? And when you pull back from it, that's the radical relinquishment again. You pull back from the stickiness of some object and you just feel how it feels to be hooked. It hurts. It hurts like hell. And that's, that's the hot potato. And that ability to go, is this really worth it? That's part of a long retreat, is you know, getting to see that any thought, most thoughts, are they really worth it to get caught in? Probably not. You know? Is any sound, sight, smell, taste, touch, thought, emotion? So that it takes this incredible kindness and compassion. It takes so much compassion for these two worlds that we um, explore as yogis. It's like we explore the world where we're really secluded and there's concentration and where it's bare attention and we're just stepping, we're just hearing, just hearing, no embellishment, or we're just stepping, we just see thinking as it is. You know, we're just with the simplicity of how things are, where we're being with it. And then there's some little thought that happens, maybe some sound happens, somebody walks by, and you sense there's aversion, and you get, right, right? You just, you have aversion to somebody else's aversion. Yeah? You know, we can just, we'll f- be afraid somebody's judging us, right? It's just like, whatever it is, there's some little thing that happens, and whew, where did bear attention go? Well, we got stuck. We got hooked. And it's okay. That whole process of, of seeing ourselves do that is the only way you can get free. And this is what we keep forgetting. You can't relinquish something until you've experienced it. So we hear, well, aversion and attachment are trouble, and then we think, okay, I'm going to apply all the willpower to getting rid of it as soon as possible, and then I'm going to be okay. Instead of thinking, oh, this is going to be learning how to get a relationship with I want that, I want more and more of that. It's like learning how to go, oh, how does this feel? And, you know, how does this process work? And how to not identify. Oh, it's just wanting. So when the the mindfulness is there, as we've said, you know, Nothing's a problem. We see it clearly. We see it will just come and go by itself. If it isn't there, we tend to um, get caught. Uh, This is a poem by Kazuko 
Shirai, Shirai Shi. He was born in 1931. And it's, it's just beautiful. That's why I'm reading it. Summertime. The full moon, four days after July 27th. My mother silently went to heaven four days ago. And tonight is the full moon. My mother quietly completed her work, the last penance called living. When she breathed in and exhaled, as if reaching as far back as to the Inca Empire, the thin river of her life trembled like a thread. Now everything is fine. She is happier than the moon. She does not have to wander about among the dark clouds. She does not have to shine serenely and slowly leave. She has obtained the permanence of her existence by not existing. Ah, I forgot to say thank you. Because you're leaving, this world was too soon, and too quiet a sigh. What is called permanence is transient, because it only exists inside me, in this finite, inside infinity. That is a permanence, is now floating. Ah, full moon. Please shine on my beloved, my mother. Please flutter like a spring breeze quietly over the repose of her soul, like drops of light. The beginning, middle, end of the breath beginning, middle, end of life. Same, same. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for your practice. You're doing really well. We're all um, very heartened and want to keep cheering you on. So it's time for walking and then the metta chant sit.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.